This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. It's episode 97 of the Equalizer podcast as we close in on that magical century mark. Dan Lawletta, Chelsea Bush, John Halloran. The big three are uh, talking with you this weekend and uh, kind of a slow week. I was cautiously optimistic at the end of last week that we would have a schedule to discuss by now. Instead, we have the nine home openers, not the full schedule, but I mean, we're running out of time. Schedule has to be coming. But we did get the She Believes camp roster this week. And I find this to be maybe the most interesting roster of the entire cycle because you had a 20 woman roster for qualifying for She Believes. It's 23. Vlako Andonovsky called in 26. So obviously three of those will get cut. But the Olympic roster is only 18. So this seems like kind of the final chance for some people to make an impression. There was no Sophia Smith. And what I found interesting and Chelsea, I'll give it to you first. But what I found interesting here was that the two players that he said in the conference call in January that he gave things that they needed to work on when they went back to their clubs, that was Ali Long and Morgan Bryan. They are not on this roster. So I think that's pro- that means that what Flacco says to us seems to be what he means. And it means that those two players don't have a lot of time left to get back on this roster. But 26 down to 23, what were your initial thoughts? Um, I agree with you. I think it's looking slim for, for Brian and Long to make the roster. Um, they'd have to just come out with absolutely smashing seasons and, and whatever, um, however many games they have to do it. And I feel like some other midfielder is going to have to really fall off. I thought that Jordan DiBiase being included was, was interesting. Um, I, I think there's probably an outside chance for players like her and Mitch Purse and Jane Campbell that were brought back onto this roster. But I think, this is Vlatko using the opportunities he has, he has to look beyond the Olympics. Um, I don't think she's going to make the Olympic roster, but I, I do think she had a good rookie season. I think she's a good player to invest in for the future, and so I'm go- I was glad to see her there. And I think even if you don't make the roster, uh, you know, and I say this all the time, I'm a huge proponent. You have extra camp spots, throw them to a player like DiBiase so that when you get her back in, Later on, she's got a little bit more experience to build on, and I still believe she takes certain things that she gets out of this camp back with her to the Washington spirit. Maybe that helps somebody else on the spirit who's not even on the radar at this point. John, what were your thoughts when you saw the 26? Um, Well, actually, just to kind of feed off of what you just said, I think that's a good point about bringing players in for like an initial camp or or, uh, getting them in when you can because, you know, almost every player you talk to, talks about their first camp as being such an eye-opening experience and just kind of getting that out of the way or getting as much as many of those, you know, camps here and there in for players like that, I think sets them up for success later on. 
Um, but I, you know, it was, it was an interesting roster to me because as you mentioned, uh, you know, Long and Brian still being out, I, I don't think Smith was that big of a surprise because of, you know, her duties elsewhere, but, um, it was very similar to the original Olympic roster, the camp roster, uh, for qualifying. And I, I guess I was a little surprised that short and purse were back in, um, not to say that they're not fringe players in that sense, but I wonder if Allie Krieger's performance in that final game maybe made Vlatko rethink the idea that he was completely set on the group of uh, defenders that he had brought in uh, for that qualifying roster. And if maybe Short does have an actual shot at, at getting into this Olympic team, which I think a lot of us thought that once she missed that 20 player roster, you know, if you miss a 20 player roster, how are you making an 18 player roster? Um, so I think there are probably some, some decisions. And uh, we saw Mallory Pugh brought back in and we saw Williams coming back in after I think what most people thought was a, a fairly decent Olympic uh, qualifying tournament. Uh, on the short front. And I think we may be belaboring this point, but if I told you that you could be in the room for one set of conversations between Andonovsky and a player, wouldn't it be Casey Short? Like, aren't we just dying to know where she actually stands at this point? Because what we're seeing on the camp, you know, with the rosters is not what we're seeing on the field. I think for games, at least at the league level, you're right. We don't, we don't know what's happening in camp. So that's something that none of us know. And only the coaches and the players know, but, uh, we know what she can do in games in the league. Uh, I don't. I there's a disconnect. I think that's. I, I th- and I think that we're saying the same thing. But there's a disconnect between what we see in a week-to-week basis and where she seems to sit now with two national team coaches. I was uh, during this week. I did a little traveling with the family and saw some folks that I don't see very often that are very into women's soccer. That's a rarity for me to bump into people that actually enjoy women's soccer and can have a conversation about it. But all they wanted to know is what do you think about Lynn Williams? What do you think of Lynn Williams? I feel like Lynn Williams might be the new Kristen Press in the sense that she is right now where Press was a little while ago, very talented, but kind of on the fringes. And the diversity of opinions about whether she should be on the team is incredible. You've got the, she was great in qualifying. She's a shoe in to, she beat up on bad teams in qualifying and she can't finish in the league. Get her out. I think, Chelsea? yeah, I was going to say for me, it's, um, I want to see her get a lot of minutes and she believes, and I want to see her consistently, uh, finish at that level because I, I do think she has a problem with her finishing and I do think previously when she's been on the national team that when the competition has stepped up that she has not been great I, I think technically she's got a little ways to go um but yeah I think she was great in qualifying I think she deserved uh the opportunity she's being given and, and she believes to see that she can and with Alex Morgan being out probably being out um you know, she has an opportunity to get in there, but I, I, I remain a little bit on the fence as to whether or not she can be a consistent difference maker at the Olympics. Well, and she doesn't, she misses chances in the league too. Like she gets a lot of opportunities in that system and she misses a lot. So I don't yeah, think, right. I mean, this is, this is who she is. I, and that's it, it, not necessarily a dig. It's just, this is who she is as a player. And 
and listen, I like her. You know, she's she's very talented. She's obviously, you know, has an ability to break down defenses with her pace and to go at people. Um, but you know, sometimes her technical level does let her down. And um, you know, it's not a personal thing. It's just this is who she is as a player. I think any of us who've ever talked to her one on one love it. Like it's it's an absolute great conversation anytime you have a chance to to chat with her um but she this she's a fringe player i think that's just where she sits and chelsea don't you know that in women's soccer especially you're not allowed to be on the fence you've got to be extreme <laughs> one way or another even yeah, if you but change I mean, your yeah but john, john kind of echoed what i was saying and my concern is that even the U.S. Women's National Team does not always give the amount of opportunities that North Carolina Courage shows because of the, how they play yep. and, and who they play. Um, the Courage absolutely bombed the box. And when she can she do that? Can she use her pace to get around someone like Lucy Bronze? That's what I want to see, if, if assuming Lucy Bronze plays an outside back, which I, I devoutly hope she does. No more of her in the midfield. But that's yeah, all you know, I, I think Williams, too, can be more effective against better teams. Because that opens the field up. You're not going to see teams bunker or sit back as much, um, which plays to her strengths, I think, a little bit more. Yeah, that's interesting. And these are certainly better teams coming up, and she believes. I feel like also Heath and Rapino were not necessarily 100% yeah. during qualifying. And, you know, I stand by my belief that Rapino, and I'm not saying Rapino shouldn't be on this team, but I don't know that Rapino has been a 90 minute player at this level for the better part of a year now. So I'm curious to see how those two do. And then you look at Jess McDonald, who was not allocated, and we can talk about that a little bit later, but that kind of leads me to think that maybe she's under the gun a little bit to perform here. And I don't think she stood out. Not that she did anything wrong. She just was kind of there during qualifying. I don't, you know, I have not, I mean, she's a fabulous story, but I haven't noticed her do anything spectacular in quite a while. That makes me think she's got to be part of that 18. You know, I think the one last benefit of having Williams and or McDonald, too, is that it's nice to have a backup pure nine in case Carly Lloyd drops, you know, in form. Yep. And she wasn't great in qualifying, but I think I think we're beyond the point where we're worried about that. I think especially with there's no Alex Morgan. I think I mean, Carly Lloyd's going to be in the team. Yeah. And we I think she's going to be OK at some point. How about the keepers? Like is France just in there? Just to keep getting camps, and it's going to be Nair, Harris. Um, I'm sorry, is Campbell in there just to get the camps, and it's going to be Nair, Harris, and then French as your basically alternate, and Campbell just comes in to pick up some slack, or do we think there's actually a chance this thing moves? No, I, I think at least for what was kind of indicated with Harris getting that one game and qualifying is that right now I would say she seems to be uh, the number two, which – Bizarre to me that given those, especially in, the, in those three group games, French could have just, just as easily gotten a game and we would have known known much more now. I mean, all three of them just stood there. But the fact that Harris got a game and then they went back to Nair is a little bit interesting to me. And we didn't hear anything about French getting a knock. So I think Campbell's another one kind of maybe like Purse or DiBiase where he says, you're not going to make the Olympics, but... I need I need someone else. I need to fill out this roster a little bit. And you've still got something I could see to exploit down the road. And to me, what's interesting is Casey Murphy has, you know, she got that one camp and then hasn't been seen since. I think she'll get in after the Olympics. I would hope at so. At some point. Because, I, 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 I mean, honestly, again, great story, great season. I, I don't think she's of the class of these other three right now to play at the international level. 
And the only other one is what? Bledsoe, right? Bledsoe. Yeah, I mean, everybody thought Abby Smith, but she didn't even get a minute. Oh, yeah, the that's that's a tough situation for her. Last year. You know, and to be honest, Barnhart, Nicole Barnhart <laughs> is better than everybody. Like, she yeah. was better than everybody yeah. on this on this in this camp in the league last year was she not we've yeah we've had this conversation before you know i, mean, I, I, think, I think that ship sailed. if you had to win one game I, I i'd be hard pressed not to put her in the net absolutely so we also we basically all think that campbell purse dibiase have to really shine or they're the three cuts down to the 23 i think that's I think, a good guess i think it's a good guess and also that shine and somebody else is going to have to drop off Right. And and David, I don't know if Davidson is healthy yet, but with 23 and the games don't matter, I think it's easy to float her on the roster, even if you're not going to play her more than a few minutes. He's, he has to see what Pew does in camp, too. You think maybe you know, that is that possibly a message sending lead yes, off? If that's she exactly do well? that's exactly what I think. Like if she comes in, maybe she's she's OK or maybe slightly better, but maybe you're trying to to get through to her that she has to, you know, step back up to a, to a higher level that maybe you cut her again and just try to see if you can spark her a little bit heading into the, the spring. It's interesting. Cause when he brought her in, when he brought her with them to the qualifying, I think that's kind of a unique setup. Yeah. So, and, I mean, and it's not may, bad to no, do that no, with no. a young player. No, you know, no. you want to like pick them back up a little bit or say, Hey, give them some encouragement. But at the same time, you've got to give them that message that, hey, you're not where we want you to be right now. And she could have trained well during that time, but I would have to imagine that the training, once the game start, doesn't compare even a right. little bit to to the camps because, you know, you got quick turnarounds and you've got players have to rest. Yeah, and we what? talked about that with the World Cup players. Like, they barely trained at all. Even even the, the bench players barely trained at all on those days off, which... Um, we could have a whole separate conversation about that. But, yeah, they don't do a lot of work. So there's really not a whole lot here. It's 26 for 23. And, I mean, basically it's these 26. You know, Morgan's in the mix if she, you know, if things work out for her. But, you know, this is the pool pretty much. You know, we don't even think DiBiase and Campbell are really are really part of it. So, there's, you know, we've got what we've got, and we'll see what happens. And I think this is an important three games because they're good opponents um, you know, there'll be some travel, might be cold, could be some adversity. Um, um, I think this is the most interesting She Believes Cup we've had yet. How about that? That's an interesting take because I think there are some things you need to see heading into the Olympics. And I certainly like it a lot better without the three, uh, you know, Germany, France, England was kind of like rep- a little bit too much repetition. I like the variety. In the opponents, even Spain being in Europe, I don't put them maybe necessarily in the same vein as the other as the other two. All right, let's uh, step out. We'll take a break. We've got uh, Federation players to discuss. The U20s got going. Um, Man City and Chelsea played an epic game over in England, which um, is not something we're going to cover in a great a great deal, but it was certainly one to remember. Uh, this is episode 97 of the Equalizer podcast. Episode 97, Segment 2, Equalizer Podcast. Dan with Chelsea and John. A couple of things we teased beforehand. The U-20s 
began their CONCACAF championship, a.k.a. qualifying, and they did not really have a problem with, uh, who did they beat here, Cuba, 9 to nothing. And the other game in their group, the Dominican Republic beat Honduras 7 to nothing. So the U-20 seemed about as exciting and as level as the senior women do, but um, that was Laura Harvey's debut as the U-20 head coach, and that is right into the fire. We thought Vlatko was into the fire with the Olympics, and that was probably higher profile. At least he had a camp and some games before we went right into qualifying. So congrats to Laura Harvey on that and over in England. And we're not going to make this a podcast where we talk a lot about the European leagues, but Man City and Chelsea, probably the most important game so far in all of Europe this season. And it did not disappoint. A 3-3 draw leaves Man City one point ahead of Chelsea. But Chelsea, who was unbeaten, has a game in hand. They do not play again. Uh, Arsenal, who had their game postponed this week, also has a game in hand on Man City, and they are four points back. So that's that. If you're wondering if Sam Kerr scored a goal, she did not. All right, John Chelsea, we've got uh, the allocated players this year for the NWSL. Um, Now, keep in mind, this list was done, like, in December, at least for the U.S. I'm not sure when when the Canadian list was completed. So the fact that Ali Long is there and Morgan Bryan is there, even though it looks like they might be facing a season where they really don't participate on the national team. Uh, they both make it. Jess McDonald does not. Um, and I hate, I don't want to go to the Canada route, but Diana Matheson is still there and still uh, a Federation player for the Royals. But again, generic question, but John, what stands out? I think probably the biggest thing, as you mentioned, because this list was done in December, uh, is why Jessica McDonald did not did not make that list because you know understanding the timing of it makes more sense when you look at as you mentioned Brian and Long or even Short who at the end of the at the end of the uh, victory tour had started getting more call ups as people were hurt um, you know you can make a case for all of them you can make a case for adding Allie and Tierna I think Tierna is a no brainer um, and then you know based on the fact that Allie Krieger made the World Cup roster. Um, I think you can make a case for that, considering you're going to keep her around for the Olympics. But dropping, or I shouldn't say dropping, but not adding McDonald seemed to be a bit of a, a head-scratcher there. I think, to me, that kind of, it gives us an idea of at least where uh, Vlatko was thinking before he got into qualifying, going based off basically what the that one camp he had with, with those players. Uh, I, I think it's not a great sign for how much he rates McDonald. Um, so, I mean, she's, she's still been a consistent call-up ever since, but it's interesting to me. Also interesting that, like, he he didn't allocate Williams or McDonald, but then he turns around in January camp and doesn't put Pew on the Olympic roster because she was outperformed, but she's allocated. So it's interesting how much things can change in a short time, too. Yeah. Let's, read, let's read them off, actually, team by team. Red Stars, Brian Davidson, Ertz, Nayer, Short, Davidson is new. Dash have no Americans, three Canadians, Chapman, Prince, and Schmidt. Courage only have four total. Dal Kemper, Dunn, Mewis. As we mentioned, there's no Williams, there's no McDonald, there's no Zerboni, who I know she's not a Courage anymore, but she was allocated last year. Canadian is LeBay. Pride have Harris, Krieger, Morgan, Sonnet. Krieger is new, a.k.a. returning. Canadians Adorsky, Thorns have French, Heath, Haran, and Canadian Sinclair. Rain have Long and Rapino. 
Sky Blue have Lloyd, Pugh, and Canadian Sheridan. Royals have O'Hara, Press, Salabrun, Canadians, Matheson, and Scott. And the lone Washington spirit is uh, Rose Lavelle. Um, again, kind of similar to the Olympic roster, right? Like you can talk about McDonald and uh, Williams, but there's really not a lot of players you would expect to be in this mix. Right? I mean, we're really dealing with a pool that's not even 30 players for this. For the most, you could part, also for the see Salt. You could also see Sullivan in a yeah, position a good one. like some yeah. of those because, you know, if she makes the Olympic roster and she's going to Tokyo and she's not an allocated player, she's making a significantly smaller amount of money. Which um, was the case last year for like Davidson, even though yep, we all absolutely. knew she was going to be on that roster. That and, to and me is Krieger still and McDonald. Um, so you're right. It does happen. But Krieger was like, like, didn't Krieger didn't get in till after she believes though. Right. Right, it was the last camp before the. That was the was very, April, very last minute. April. Yeah. Yeah. Wasn't it at she believes when Harjeet or Eliza <laughs> colleague asked yeah. Jill Ellis, "Have you thought about Krieger?" And Ellis said, "Nope, I haven't thought about yeah. that." Yeah. That's exactly right. Oh, but I do want to point out because didn't I say on a podcast before now when we were talking about the allocation list coming out that Krieger might be added, and someone here whose name I will not mention said Ali Krieger's definitely not going to be added. Didn't that happen on this podcast? Is my name now a name who won't be mentioned? Did I say that? I said I wasn't going to mention it, Daniel. Play no. later. I'm giving you the opportunity <laughs> to out me. <laughs> it might be. I'm just having a little bit of moment, a little bit of a t- I don't get very many I told you so's over you, so I'm enjoying this one. All right. I uh, I yeah. Not I, that it looking, means anything. Looking back, I would have I was shocked that Krieger got back in the mix. Again, Casey Short was the player we all thought was there and all of a sudden it was Krieger no short. Yeah, the Casey Short story after after all this is gonna be quite interesting, all the the backroom conversations with two coaches that we're not privy to. And the fact she's allocated now makes it even like that's another whole layer on top. She was allocated last year too. Like she's in this very bizarre limbo. I mean good for her because she's making significantly more money than it's a lifestyle changing uh, whatever you'd call it, designation. Yeah, I mean, the only thing is, I guess she's not eligible to be, I think she would otherwise be eligible for allocation money. Yeah, but, can we yeah, but there's, there's no way that's going to hit anywhere near a U.S. salary. No. Can we talk about that, too? Like, can we, now you have allocation money and allocated players, and I know I'm not the first person to point this out, but that's very confusing. Well, they're actually federation players, I think. I think that's, we're not supposed to use allocation anymore, I don't think, for the players. So that's on us, I think. You mean for the U.S. and Canadian players? Right. Because the list, the news release, uses allocated oh, right, five well, times in the first three cracks. Well, I guess so. I'm wrong about that, then. <laughs> guess um, I'm wrong about that. You know, there's one other thing I wanted to add about this whole discussion, though, is that I was under the impression, and I had been given that impression by people who work with the national team union, that there was this idea that over time this list was going to be reduced um, over time as teams started to take up more of the slack in salary as uh, the CBA, you know, uh, at least, again, I was given this impression, would start to wean the number of players on this list down. Um, And that did not happen. In fact, we added 
players this time around. And maybe that's because there's a coaching change or we're entering an Olympic year, but I've been a pretty strong proponent of kind of uh, grandfathering this process out because I really believe that the, the U.S. Soccer Federation needs to be putting this money into the league. And I think you've created this situation. And again, they, they do this for very um, non-altruistic reasons. They do this so that they can pull these players out anytime they want and so that they can have them for their camps. But it creates a better situation if you strengthen the league by pushing this money in there. And there's no reason that players, these players particularly, wouldn't make more money, but um, it, there wouldn't be this gigantic chasm between being an allocated player, um, a federation allocated player, and just being a, a standard league player. Uh, my only counterpoint to that is, did they add a player because of Morgan? Uh, maybe. I mean, and, you know, listen, to me, Tierna, I think it was, I think Tierna kind of got screwed last year not being on that list because it was obvious they were for you know, sure. pushing her, pushing her to yeah. declare for the draft. Those are other yeah. conversations I'd be curious about. You know, she it feels totally like they kind of took advantage of her because she was 20 and they thought, well, we don't have to allocate her and we can still get her to declare because she wants to go to the World Cup so bad. Um, and there is going to be a problem because I'm with you, John. I said from day one, there's got to be an end game for not just not having these players paid for by U.S. soccer, but for a split from U.S. soccer. And the league owners yes. seem to realize that U.S. soccer, maybe not as much, which is odd because you think U.S. soccer would be running away from this thing. But, you know, to the Rapino point, after the allocation money came out, you know, now we've got Allie Riley coming in. She's making allocation money. We don't know how much we think. You know, there's strong rumors still about Diani coming to Portland. Um, I've heard there's at least one other team that's bringing in a big player. You know, eventually they're going to have to answer to these players who are not going to be eligible to make that kind of money. And, you know, and I'm not complete. You know, at some, at some point you've got to say, you know what, I can live on 80 to 150,000 and have the league survive and thrive. And I'll be remembered as a pioneer rather than somebody that, you know, stood my ground and helped blow up the league. But it, they, at some point, the owners in U.S. soccer are going to have to answer for that. Well, and it, you know, the well, first of all, we, we've written about this on the site. I wrote a, an op-ed last year about how I think the, the Federation should just give this amount of money to the league and let them figure out how to distribute it salary-wise. But um, the let's, let's also take into account that the owners stepped off a ledge in – I think it was, I don't know, it was either late October or early November when they announced this allocation policy. And then they were expecting the Federation to come in with a cash injection right. as the Federation cut its management agreement. And that didn't happen. And so, listen, we have to be realistic. There are still owners in the league who do not have the capital needed to run these teams. And they certainly don't have the capital to increase salary. So, we can all sit here and say that these players are not being paid what they deserve, but you have to have an owner who's willing to open up a paycheck and or open up their, you know, their bank book. But two, that person has to actually have that money. And there are owners who don't have that money. They can't pay extra salaries when they're already, you know, in debt running their team as it is. So there's, there's a gap here and, 
it is in a bit of a tenuous situation. We've seen this with ownership changes. We've seen this with clubs that have brought on additional owners. Um, we've seen that with several teams over the past few years, and we're going to keep seeing that. We're going to have to see that because unless the Federation steps in with a major cash injection, which seems very unlikely at this point, um, some of these owners simply cannot keep up. And they're not making money with these teams either, which doesn't right. help that. Now, you you know, in speaking of owners being added, uh, let's give a little another little hat tip to Sky Blue, who added Ed Nalbandian to their ownership group. Now, i be honest, I never heard of him until this happened, but he's been an executive at many of the top tech companies around the country. And, you know, who knows what it does for the team, but I would venture to say a year ago, you couldn't have paid somebody a salary to be part of their ownership group. So uh, that is a real nice job uh, by the Sky Blue ownership. And one other note, uh, Sky Blue owner Phil Murphy, who's also the governor of New Jersey, recently announced that he has um, cancer on his kidney and is expected to be treated for that in a couple of weeks. So we wish him the best uh, in that regard. Um, on that cheery note, um, let's uh, leave this segment and we'll come back and we're going to ponder the question, who is actually running the league right now? Plus your questions from Twitter and uh, failed to mention this at the top of the segment. But uh, if you haven't yet, check us out on the web at EqualizerSoccer.com or for premium content, EqualizerSoccer.com slash subscribe. Always with new content. Anytime anything important breaks or goes down in the world of women's soccer, we're headed towards She Believes Cup and some other stuff. So check us out on the web, EqualizerSoccer.com. And for premium content, EqualizerSoccer.com slash subscribe. And please be sure to rate and review the Equalizer podcast today. We'll be back with segment three. It's episode 97 of the podcast. Welcome back. Third and final segment of the Equalizer podcast. It is episode 97. Dan Lawletta, Chelsea Bush, John D. Halloran. And it's time for the Equalizer Soccer Sports Reference Stat of the Week brought to you by our friends at Sports Reference. Check out their ever-growing online catalog of women's soccer stats at fbref.com. That's fbref.com. And with the virtually static release of the Federation players, we still have eight players that have been subsidized, allocated Federation players, whatever we want to call it, for the entirety of the eight years in the NWSL, we've got Ashlyn Harris, Alex Morgan, Tobin Heath, Kelly O'Hara, Becky Sauerbrunn, and Megan Rapino from the U.S. and from Canada, Christine Sinclair, and Diana Matheson. Of those players, Heath, Rapino, and Sinclair are the only ones to do it on the same team each year, although notably FC Kansas City sort of became Utah. So Becky Sauerbrunn really has never moved team. She just had her affiliation kind of transferred from FC Kansas City to Utah a couple of years ago. So eight players, Harris, Morgan, Heath, or Harris, Sauerbrunn, Rapino, Sinclair, and Matheson have been subsidized by their federations all eight seasons of the NWSL. And that is the Equalizer Soccer Sports Reference Stat of the Week brought to you by our friends at Sports Reference. Check them out on the web at fbref. Dot com. All right, so we've got that established. What we do not have established is who exactly is running the NWSL right now. Amanda Duffy announced that she was leaving, and we were assured that there would be somebody in place by the time she went to Orlando February 15th. There wasn't. Then we got a very 
um, half-hearted statement from the league that there was a transitional plan approved by the board, but they're not telling us who's in charge. Now, I'm not a believer that we need to know everything that goes on behind closed doors. I'm not a believer that we always need to be tuned into the process, but I am a believer that the a pro sports league is a public trust, and you you kind of know who's running the league. There's at least got to be a spokesperson for the league. It seems like it's Arnim Whistler who owns the Red Stars, but that hasn't ever been formally addressed. And you know we're less than two months out now. There's no full schedule. Um, there's a, you know there's no TV deal. We don't know when and where the final is going to be, other than the I think I think maybe Meg Linehan leaked the date or the weekend or reported it, but um, yeah. Chelsea, who's running this ship? Probably me, to be honest. <laughs> I mean, that's as good as anyone right now. Uh, that's a that's a good question. I would hazard a guess is to say a handful of the owners are, are probably the closest thing to running this league right now. But don't doesn't the public have a right to know who's running it? Well, sure, but we we, we should know a lot of things that we don't. Yeah, but I feel like this one is, like, paramount. I mean, we should have not only known who's running, we shouldn't have gone this long without a commissioner anyway. I don't... I mean, yeah, we had Duffy, who was essentially the commissioner, but she never really was. I mean, I don't see that a whole lot has changed, to be honest with you. What was also interesting about the statement was they said that they've... I. I don't know. Maybe we. Maybe I should pull it up. But they they referenced the new commissioner as their. They look forward to she. They mentioned they used the word she. But I've also heard that they're down to like four finalists. So is it four finalists that all happen to be female? Do they have somebody picked out that is, um, you know, it's going to be a couple of weeks before they can announce them? I mean, it's, I, just, it's bizarre. I think they have. I think they know who it is. All right, here we go. With respect to the commissioner, a number of qualified outstanding candidates were interviewed, and the league is pleased to share that the new commissioner will be introduced in the coming weeks. We are confident she will further cement NWSL's place as the global standard for professional sports leagues. Uh, I don't know about that last part there, but um, John, what do you think? They got somebody? or they? Because, you know, Duffy went to Orlando, and they said it right away. So why? I guess that's a little different if you're staying in the industry, but I don't know why they can't tell you um who it is well i would imagine they don't have have uh pen to paper and i don't know that from any reporting i mean that's just my gut reaction it's not it's not not a good it's not a good good thing they've they've known for quite a while um I, i guess we can trust that they have a plan in place but there's been a lot of times where they've told us stuff that retroactively we found out was not true um we know that the league office in a lot of respects has been running on a bare bones staff we know that last season we went through three different pr reps including stretches where there was no pr rep and including stretches where there was an intern running things and, uh, you know, to, to my knowledge, at least, uh, you know, from our interactions and a media perspective, we interact with one person at the league and at the league level. And, 
it's 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 going to be good if there isn't a, a controversy that comes out of this, you know, in in a trade being delayed or in terms of a trade people believe was done unfairly or, you know, we don't know who is making those official decisions. And that's not a good it's not a good look. And uh, it just kind of furthers this narrative that has existed for the last couple of years that whether it's lack of money or, or whatever, that the league has not been uh, forward thinking in some of this. And the big example that hit me this week was uh, when we noticed that the posting for the new social media manager for the league is ba- to be based in New York City. And we know last year that they told those NWSL media employees in New York City that those jobs were being moved to Chicago. And we know that multiple talented people, people who we love and respect, left and found different jobs because they weren't going to move to Chicago. And now that job has been reposted as a New York City position. So there has been a lack of forethought here, and hopefully a new commissioner comes in with a vision and, and, and uses that to take the league forward. But we are not there right now. And how often do we say, you know, we finally come to this particular point and things are going to be better from this point forward? And how many times do you get some owners or league people saying, you know, you're going to be happy. Just give us some time. It, yeah, you know, and I, it's, it's, I think a it's a lack of, of money, to be honest. I think, like I said, you know, we're looking at, at varying degrees of wealth among the owners and this idea that or hope that U.S. soccer was going to step up in a bigger way. And obviously you got to pay for this stuff if you want it. And I am a pretty firm believer that it's easy for anyone to tell somebody else how they should spend their money. But uh, I do think it does come down to a, a money issue. I agree with you 100%. But it's, uh, at what point do we get to say, please, you know, they're, they're trying to upgrade the standards, I think, for the owners that come into the league. And I think in doing that, they're trying to figure out what to do with owners that are already there that maybe don't meet those standards. But at what point do we say, please don't be part of this league if you can't spend the money? You know, if if someone that didn't have the money bought into an NFL team and then started, you know, doing all kinds of small scale things, we would say, well, why did you buy the NFL team? Like, why can't we say that about, about the NWSL? Are we still just so scared that the league's going to go away that we'll take anybody? I don't know. I, I listen, we, we all have heard and, and heard over the past couple of years, some, some stories that indicated a, pretty significant lack of leadership at the league level and a lot of missed opportunities because of that. And I I try really hard not to be negative about that because I enjoy the sport and I enjoy the league, but um, it does seem that there's been uh, a lack of that leadership. And it's something again, hopefully uh, as we, you know, get uh, this new commissioner that, that some of those problems are uh, resolved. All right, we got a couple of questions here. MJM115, did Vera Boquette sign back with Utah Royals FC? Um, per Jen Cooper, her option was picked up for the second year of her contract, 2020. 
um, or wish under a two-year deal. There were no multiple de- the multiple-year deals did not exist until this year. So a- anything before this was one year and an option. So she did have her option picked up. Seems oh, like some. Well, go ahead. Wasn't Marta? You know like what? The You're right. Exception to that. You are right about that. It's a good call. A lot of times this podcast. Good call. Maybe we can call whoever's running the league and ask them to explain that to us. <laughs> Um, seems like someone they would want to keep around if she is a great ambassador for the team. Seems like a candidate to use some extra allocation money to keep around. I don't disagree. I actually thought she was great last year when she was on the field, but she kept coming up with these nagging type injuries. Uh, you know, um, we've been talking off air about, you know, you, t- you know, they've lost a lot of players to retirement and whatnot. You know, O'Hara, Sauerbrunn in the back are going to probably be at the Olympics. But uh, if you can get Vero distributing to Press and Rodriguez, I think he got something there to some extent in the attack, but I don't know. I mean, I don't know if Boquette's necessarily worth the allocation money. Um, that's just my opinion. I don't know. John, I'm babbling. Save me. <laughs> uh, yeah. All I right. No, I mean, you're right. I think you're right in terms of if, if they can get Vero um, in that position. I think that was kind of the thought, or at least the thought that we all had when they first brought her in. Um so we'll see, but they they they've got to be a little ambitious here, because uh, as you just mentioned and, and we talked about off air, they've lost a few players here, and I don't think you look at any one of those players and think, ooh, that's a backbreaker. But now we're up to I believe four players have either been traded away or retired, uh, and there might be more to come, and you've got to replace those players. And if you're going to be better than you were last year when you missed the playoffs. What you bring in has to be better than what has retired or been traded away. All right. Godwin and Coley with Sky Blue upgrading to a world-class home arena and training ground along with their access to the media capital of the world. Do you feel Sky Blue is now on par with Thorns FC to attract the best players? Um, Godwin, I don't know where you're from, but I am a, I'm a lifelong New Yorker, and I'll answer that this way. I've been here through... Uh, the WNBA since it's started through um, MLS now with two teams in the market, Sky Blue FC. We've had arena football. We have had various other attempts to put like secondary sports. We currently have, you know, XFL just came to uh, the Meadowlands. Small scale sports do not have anywhere near the same impact in New York as the big teams here. They get swallowed up. There is not a lot of public interest in these teams. So my answer to that question is no. I don't believe Sky Blue FC is on par with the Thorns in terms of the market they play. And now if the team gets good and people come to the games and the ownership decides to throw around money, that's a different story. But there has not been a league yet where the New York market, outside of straight-up money, has been an attractive place to come for players in the secondary sports leagues. And let's face it, this is a secondary sports league. And I'll open it up to either one of you two to comment on that from your perch outside New York. I mean, I just think that that sort of thing is not something that can happen just because you've made some additions to your team and you get a new stadium. I mean, Portland has a reputation and they've been building since 2013 of a winning culture of an extremely supportive culture where they consistently, you know, they have sellouts, they have an enormous supporters 
club and and they treat their players uh their their women's players just like they do the men's and they treat them like professional athletes and they did that long before anyone else came along so i think that that is something to build a reputation that attracts the players like like Amandine Henri that they've attracted in the past i just think is is something that's going to take time for any other team to accomplish you know um can i just add i think i've been pretty bullish on what sky blue's done over the past uh past i guess 18 months now and i would totally agree that they're not on par with portland i think that's that's maybe a couple of bridges too far but you're you're now near new york city which is obviously a fun place i think for young people to live you are now in a professional stadium after being in a stadium that clearly was not professional you now are at professional practice facilities when you know equalizer in in pretty great detail went through some of the lacking facilities that the organization had in years past. The fan base is re-energized and excited. Uh, You have a a stadium that is accessible by public transportation, which is particularly good considering the league's uh, fan demographic. And when I look at, you know, I was taking a look because we were, this was another thing we talked about a little bit off air. When I look through their roster, when you bring in Pew and Zerboni and Purse and Anamanu, when you draft real, and then when you've also already got Sheridan, Monahan, Lloyd, uh, hopefully Freeman coming back, Lewandowski, Killy, and Dorsey, there's a team there. Like that's a those are that's 12 players right there. You can put that into a pretty good roster, and if you stay healthy, um, you know, and, and if Coom can get people to buy into what she wants to do, they can have a good season this year, and they can have a pretty major turnaround from where they've been over the past two years. All right, a couple from uh, late last week that we missed, and and to Heather O'Reilly and Stephen Flamhaft, who I, I that's the 1960s uh, U.S. men's player that uh, wasn't too keen on the equal pay lawsuit. Do those comments have implications for the lawsuit? And what's up with the men's players union finally supporting the women? Um, I encourage you to listen back to last week's pod, and I get that you probably sent us in before that pod aired, but. Uh, the short story there is I don't think the O'Reilly and the Flamhaft comments um, have hold any water legally, and the men's players are in their own negotiations. So they're trying to preemptively, um, I don't know about to save themselves, but they're thinking, hey, if the women make X, then we make at least X, and if the lawsuit fails, then we make X plus in all likelihood. Uh, Diane Hansen, if Solo opts in, does that hurt? women's national team case or is it just a talking point same thing i'd encourage you if you haven't yet to listen to last week's podcast with kelsey trainer um it's i don't know if it helps or hurts it's just the fact that solo maybe has other information based on another case that she's in and also from diane is the argument that if the women's national team was to win it would it damage other programs because of the money the legal argument or a public opinion argument um I, probably a little bit of both I think because obviously if you're giving the women more, then you are not, not there's money that's not going elsewhere. But I would also venture to say that if you give the women more, then you're overall helping your product. So I think that, I know a lot of tennis tournaments that brought women and men together to have joint events all claim that that has made their event that it's so much a better event and a more lucrative event with the men and women there together. So I think it would be the same um, in this particular case. Any thoughts on that or or moving on? Because we're just about out of time. 
had a pretty strong uh, reaction to one of our fellow journalists about the uh, whether it hurts other programs argument. And I, you know, it might, but I think it's, I think it's a bit unfair to expect the workers to be responsible for the long-term consequences of poor management decisions that they are responsible, that management is responsible for uh, creating and fixing. Chelsea, parting shot for the day. I think you should give the women more money. More money. More money. More than the men or more than they're getting now? More than they're getting now. Um, and last thing, the schedule, um, we think it's coming out. I think it's a big deal that it's not out because I think people are already planning their summers. And you got to have you got to have targets for them or they're going to wind up spending their discretionary money and using their discretionary weekends elsewhere. I think you and us three, we're going to be just fine. The games will be out. We'll, we'll be there. We'll watch them. We'll follow them. But I think you got to make a bigger, better connection with your, with the fans and you got to make a better connection to the potential fans. So I think it's got to be done way before this now going forward. Looks like we have run out of things to say on episode 97 of the equalizer podcast. Make sure to tune back in next week for Chelsea and John. I'm Dan. Thanks for listening to the equalizer podcast.